Peter R. Bregan, M.D., is called the conscience of psychiatry for his many decades of successful reform efforts. His scientific and educational work provide the foundation for modern criticism of drugs and ECT and lead the way in promoting more caring and effective therapies. His books include Talking Back to Prozac, Toxic Psychiatry, Medication Madness, Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, and now Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions. Welcome to the Dr. Peter Bregan Hour. Well, hello, hello again, my wonderful audience. I cannot believe what amazing people I've been able to present to you this year. Uh, all of them, practically, uh, with very few exceptions, new to me, because we're all people who rose to the occasion for COVID-19. And that's uh, basically what holds together the themes of my interviews. You're looking at uh, Kirk Milhone, Dr. Milhone. Um, if you've been following uh, the Dr. Peter Bregan Hour, you have already met Kim Milholm. Certainly one of the most extraordinary uh, people I've interviewed. Um, a woman who um, has really devoted her life to service and who's a, a pediatric anesthesiologist, a really uh, in the cardiac area, really highly specialized uh, person. And when did the two of you meet? We met when uh, I was a, uh, an intern and I was rotating through her hospital at UC Davis. And her best friend was my third year medical student. And, and so her best friend uh, in medical school introduced us. So uh, it, was in 19, um, it was in 1996 we first met. And she she describes herself until meeting you as as not fully embracing you know giving her life to Jesus and to God and to and to service and it's um, it's a really remarkable story, folks. Um, I really recommend you you also look at Kimberly's interview. Now, uh, Kirk went to call me Peter. By the way, I don't mean to be informal without asking you. Sure. We didn't get to chat Thank a lot, lot before we started. Um, uh, Kirk started out at uh, Point Loma Nazarene University uh, in 1986, and it's on the shores of uh, of San Diego, looking out over the ocean. And um, I, I just couldn't resist taking a look. It's got to be one of the most beautiful uh, campuses in the world. Um, I noticed uh, um, it was a, a really number three or something on the um, wave riding. What do you call that? Um, Surfing, yeah, yeah. Did you surf? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, oh gosh. Um, did you? Did they have a surf team? Yeah, but I was never even close to being good enough the, to the be surf on their team. surf team. Surfing is one of the things I decided to uh, protect myself from doing. <laughs> Along with skiing and a couple of other things, it uh, seemed to me that my the risks I I looked ahead to taking in the world <laughs> did not include my body. Although I did play football in high school, I must say, and got a bit banged up, of course, as we all do. Um, he uh, first got a PhD in cardiac physiology and pharmacology, which really indicates um, uh, at San Diego really indicates the, uh, his scientific orientation. 
He uh, then got his MD at Jefferson Medical School, his uh, magna cum laude. That's that's in Philadelphia. It's a very old school. So is um, Loma Nazarene. And um, he then went on into the Air Force. Did you do that? Um, by the way, I've never gone through this way and just asked a person questions. I just think you and your wife and your lives are so interesting. Did you go into the Air Force uh, in order to have your training paid for? Was that the issue? Did you go in because you yeah. wanted to serve? Well, yeah, lots of different reasons. You know, the reason I went to get my PhD first is I actually wanted to be an astronaut physician. And uh, in my youth, I was very bad at asking questions. I would just figure out things on my own and go do them. And I thought, wow, I, I really neglected to take the wisdom of people who could have helped me in my earlier mm -hmm. stage. But it's been an interesting road. So I, um, I, was, uh, uh, I decided to go get my PhD first. And at UCSD, they had a large space physiology, a respiratory space physiology um, platform on the shuttle. Um, and so uh, I got accepted um, um, to to that university. Um, a funny story is, is that I also applied to Caltech and uh, I got a very nice letter from Caltech. It was one line. It said, we have very high standards at Caltech. You have not met our standards. Um, <laughs> but so I went to do space physiology, but as soon as I got accepted and I was going down that road, uh, then the, the challenger exploded. Um, on 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 launch, and so that changed everything. But I was always looking to go and do medicine eventually. Um, but I've been curious as a from a, a young age. I was very curious. I always wanted to know why things happened. Um, physiology is sort of why things happen. Um, I, when I was eight years old, I loved their old how and why books. It would explain why cirrus clouds always preceded a storm. And, and so I always had that natural curiosity. And, and so when I went to get my PhD, I was like, okay, I'm going to do, now I have to switch. And so I started wanting to do more whole animal physiology and pharmacology. And I finally ended up in Dr. Bloor's lab, who was doing large animal physiology on inflammation of the heart and trying to decide if you um, if you inflamed, if you caused a mild heart attack, would exercise work? And so we had animal models that would do that. And I eventually got into what's very interesting to me where I'm in, in now is I got into the cellular inflammation of the heart and what caused cellular inflammation of the heart and the role of platelets and the role of oxygen and all those things, um, which is very interesting when I consider what the spike protein may do to cause myocarditis in children yes. and platelet yes. activation and how that cascade works through the IL, you know, the interleukin pathways. Um, and so that's how I got into my PhD. And then, so I always had this thing in my back of my mind though, is I really loved flying. I really loved space. I was intrigued mm. by it all. And so I needed my medical school paid for. Jefferson is a private college. So the medical tuition was very high. Um, I do not come from means at all. Um, and so I got an Air Force scholarship that allowed me to um, have my medical school paid for, and then I would eventually serve um, serve the um, Air Force. Um, he um, graduated um, from his pediatric residency at um, an Air Force base and uh, Travis, famous base. And then he had a pediatric cardiology fellowship at San Diego's Children's Hospital in 2002. And one of the reasons I want to go through this kind of background um, 
is that uh, like some of our other distinguished guests here, uh, Peter McCullough, who's become a close friend, just a lovely man, we're, we're talking here with a man with the most extraordinary uh, credentials who could have gone anywhere. Um, like his wife, he, he could have headed a pharmaceutical company. He could have uh, uh, you know, become uh, the chief of uh, a big department, uh, devoted his life to, uh, to academia. Uh, the, with this background, um, there's so many different things he could have done. And uh, what did he do? Well... The next description in his, uh, I'm having fun with this. The next description in his biography is he co-founded Four Hearts and Souls, an international mission organization that cares for children with congenital heart disease with his wife, Kimberly, in 1999. And we'll talk more about that today. And I think together, if you consent to come back together, as I hope you will, as a team. He finished his service as a pediatric cardiologist and a flight surgeon in the Air Force. And then a little comma and after it, after two combat tours in Iraq. So you were in the middle of a, a great deal of uh, stress. Yeah. Did that have a profound effect on your life for the rest of your life? Just, just being in combat? Uh, Areas. You know what? What's interesting is when my father-in-law uh, he died in 2017, but he uh, he received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his uh, time in Vietnam. Um, David Nolting and he, when I would talk to him about his military stuff, uh, he he didn't have necessarily a lot to say. He just said, oh, "I was just mission stuff." And yeah, um, that's typical. Yeah, and then when I finished my combat tours. We had more to say, and I think it's it's sort of like you, Peter, and others. Is there's a there's a small sort of community, almost a fellowship of people who have gone through a certain traumatic event that brings them together. That is hard to explain, but easily understood if you went through those. I think about like the Peter McCullough's yourself now, Kim and I, who've just entered into this fellowship of people who are going through a. Um, a traumatic event that very few understand. Um, uh, what you have had, you know, your history of your career, um, all we have to do is say a couple of things and suddenly we have this, this closeness and an intimacy of friendship that, that sort of um, betrays the amount of time we know each other. And so when I was in um, those combat tours, I would come back and see patients um, I would see their the the soldiers' pay, uh, children, and that's what I did as a pediatric cardiologist. And when I would say, I remember I had this beautiful discussion with a, a family in Fort Hood, uh, and I, I I I said to the father, the father was about ready to be deployed, and his wife was pregnant with a child with heart defect, uh, and um, and I said, I know what it's like to be deployed, and. Um, I'll get you back when it's time for your child's heart surgery. <laughs> and they go, you've been deployed. You've been there. And and there was a camaraderie, a beautiful fellowship um, that they, oh, you understand. You understand how hard it is to be there not knowing. See, I always knew I was alive. I always knew I was alive. Kim didn't always know I was alive. So 
Mm. days would it might be a day or two that would go by or because you know we had internet we could email and things like that phones plus or minus but there would be times let's say that i was trying to call during her time and when she was awake um and there might go 24 or 48 hours and there were all the stories of like one time i remember i told her i was going to go um i was going to go fly on a, fly do a helicopter mission um uh and uh, with some of the Blackhawks, because I was going to go with their um, with their medical team, and um, then when I came home, our internet was down, and then I couldn't reach her the next day because I was busy in our hospital, and then it was like 36 hours before I got to talk to her, and she said, "Could you never do that for me again? Mm. Please, dude, you can tell me that you've flown afterwards, but please don't tell me that you're about ready to go fly, and then I not hear from you." Um, that was the that those were those those times. And so that fellowship of people who've been in battle, it's very interesting being a physician because I'm not a combatant. And so I would take care of um, I would take care of um, wounded Iraqis, wounded children, um, our soldiers, our um, uh, civilians who were helping over there. But I would also transport and take care of uh, those we were fighting against. We would have blood calls um, for we need blood for and once the drape went on, they were just a patient. We, we no longer looked at them as, oh, this is that or this is this is person. We're going to try really hard because it's this person. No, we simply functioned as a physician or nurses or in all the team that was there. Um, so it was very interesting when I would be transporting someone to a different hospital and, and I knew at my feet were two people who were alive, who were active and not sedated and everything else, um, might try to kill me. Even in the, even in the, even as I am trying to, to help them. Uh, so there are lots of different things that go through your mind. That's why I wrote my, I was writing my essays for one of my friend's blogs. It was when blogs first started in the nineties. Um, and I was, or 2000s, and I, and I was writing these, what I called thoughts from the cradle. Um, I consider probably from the, it looks like, I know there's some d disagreement, but I would probably put the Garden of Eden in a modern day Iraq, um, according to where the rivers come together. Um, you could put it up in uh, modern day Turkey, but, but I, so I, I point, I, I pen these thoughts, I call them thoughts from the cradle, the cradle of civilization. And I would describe mm -hmm. what I was seeing in my Bible reading, what I was seeing in um, patients who were in combat uh, or who had been injured in combat, soldiers and Marines and uh, airmen. Um, and then what I would have conversations with um, the Iraqis that I would see. And I would sort of pen all these thoughts. And, it, it, and I, I really dislike writing. I, I dislike <laughs> writing of any type. Kim loves to write. I, I would, oh my gosh, I would, I would be very happy if I never had to write another word. But every three days or so, a new thought would come up. And so I would share with people because I wanted to sort of pull back the curtain and let people see what it's like for us every day. There's some boredom, there's some tragedy, there's homesickness, all those things. So I just wrote about those um, um, to sort of share my, my experiences. Um, and I, after two tours, I came up with 80, like 82 or 83 essays. And I'm glad I wrote them down because I, because I don't like to write. Unfortunately, I don't have a diary. I don't have a journal. I don't have any of those things. But I'm glad I did that because it reminds me, like, I've forgotten a lot of those things. I put them mm -hmm. out of my mind. Um, uh, but when I talk to people who really have, who were really, who bore the burden of the battle, 
not the doctor who takes care of them, but those people who bore the burden of the battle, um, I can talk to them in a way that I understand. I understand. So it's funny. We have a, a, a uh, Kim has a habit when, when she's done going to the bathroom, sometimes she'll drop the toilet lid. And it'll, it'll make a thud sound that sounds just like a rocket landed about 100 yards away from me. <sighs> and I came out of this very, God was, um, has been very protected me. I don't, I don't have a lot of nightmares. I don't have a lot of the PTSD that other people had or and have. Um, but boy, when that would happen, I, I would just say, Kim, can you not drop the lid? <laughs> and so... But she never thought of it because it was no big deal to her. But it was like the exact frequency. It would just go through my whole body. And so now what I did is I got those nice new toilet lids that slowly close. <laughs> but, yeah, it did. It I describe in one of my essays is I, I have scars that I have scars that some people will never see. Yeah. Sure. I read stories and, and still cry. Um, when I think about what people were giving up. Um, as I saw, basically, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, even though I never served in Afghanistan. Oh, God, that, that must be just go to your heart, what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. For, in all ways. You know, I think of first of those people who are desperate to get out. You know, that, that repeating, that, that, you know, from almost reminding you of Saigon footage of those, those parents holding up their baby to a stranger, like, take my child to a better place. I mean, you're thinking— Oh my! What great love that that parent has, but how sacrificial, how trusting—all the things that can be. You, you think of those emotions in that time, and then people who left arms and legs and who have severe brain injury, or those people who never came home from Afghanistan. Um, it's a it it is a um, a community that unless you've gone there, it, it's hard to describe. So yeah, a, a lot of people don't see the scars. Um, um, but there are certain things that bring tears to my eyes very quickly. And as we were talking beforehand about your pictures of George Washington, but when you meet uh, men and women of courage um, in the midst of their courage, that is a prof that has a profound effect on my life. Um, and I I'm amazed um, by by what humans are willing to do um, and give of themselves for others. Yeah, I think um, it's true of just about everybody now that I know, almost everybody I talk to on the phone and interview, um, and it's been very inspiring. This has been the most um, inspiring about humanity uh, as I've had in my life, and yet at the same time, I've written the most disillusioning book about what's going on in the world. <laughs> So it's like looking at the, the predation in the world from these people who have no, no religion, no God, no uh, values, um, and uh, who collaborate just around one thing, which get rich and famous and powerful and, and doing top-down control over us folks. And then I'm talking with people like you. And you you make me think a lot as you talk, and and I just was thinking about that contrast between where my and Ginger's head is is a good part of the time, but we're rescued by talking with people uh, who share our values, and and that's why folks, you know, 
the one one of the most important things I think that uh, that people can get from the interviews is uh, there are wonderful people, and you're going to meet them on every level if you start to participate in this. You're going to meet them at the school boards. You're going to meet them at the the local Republican or Libertarian or Conservative committee that really desperately needs help. Or you're going to meet them if you create a, a an event and a march. I mean, we've America's not marching enough. I'm not sure what's going on out there. It's yeah. all in Great Britain and France and Germany. Even we've I mean, always been proud of France. You know, France always. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we always have our jokes about France. You know. Um, but I've actually been very impressed with the French people. Yes, they're, their resistance. They're, they're truly the liberté. You know, the um, I've been very, very impressed with that. And I'm surprised. I, I'm with you. I'm surprised that we're not marching. Um, I think uh, the intimidation here has been so complete, politically as well as with COVID, that it's just overwhelming. Um, but I'm surprised too, and disappointed. And uh, but we're, we're but on the other hand, folks, I'm I'm just enormously impressed with the underground institutions we're building. Um, and I've been talking to people about you know we got to make our own. It's not really a underground; they're above ground, but they're separate from the existing institutions. And uh, Ginger has become a publishing company. We, we are we. We are publishing the book both through through uh, uh, distributing it through through regular resources, but we're also distributing it through um, all kinds of uh, alternative means where we just go ahead and get our own fulfillment. You know, the mail the book, our own printers, and <laughs> it's a very it's very very exciting. One of the things that um, just comes out out of your um, your bio. I don't see it in front of me right now, but that you were honored as a physician of the year in the army in Iraq. How so, does how does something like that happen? Well, you know, I was sort of a unique person because I had done while I was in the Air Force. As soon as I started, um, Kim and I opened an orphanage in Zambia. Um, led by God under the sort of George Mueller, who was a, um, a, a Lutheran pastor from way back in the 1800s. Um, basically, it was called the Open Orphanages. And he's he's one of my heroes of faith. And because he never asked man for money, never, he would seek God. And so at one point, he was taking care of 2,100 orphans and never asked anyone for money. And God would provide for that. And so one time I was coming back from doing a cardiac um, uh, screening in Kosovo, and I felt like God said, why don't you open up an orphanage in Zambia? And so we went ahead and did that. Um, so that was when, 2003, that was when I had just been a year in the Air Force. But I also felt as, as when I was in the Air Force, while I was a pediatric cardiologist and doing all this, um, I, um, I, I had that longing that I can't, it was just a longing that if there are people in harm's way, um, then I have an obligation to go help them. I, I, I can't sit back. I have to go whatever. I'm not a combatant, but what can I do um, to bind the wound? You know, what, what can I do to help? Um, and so it was during that time that I went and got my, um, went to um, get my certified as a flight surgeon. Um, but I sort of went at it in a different way. I'm a pediatric cardiologist and, I should be staying at home. Why would you be becoming a, a flight surgeon? But there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out excuses not to go to Iraq 
So then if I had, they had someone who was willing to go to Iraq, um, well then, okay, well, we'll work with you and figure this, this out. Um, uh, and so I had the orphanage working. I had all the work that Kim and I were doing in Mongolia, uh, trying to teach them how to do um, open heart procedures in Mongolia with large teams going. And I had to do this all within my constraints of the time off I had a, as, as an Air Force officer and all my other obli obligations. And so people started hearing more and more that, wait, he had an orphanage? Wait, he's a flight doc? Wait, he, he, he's doing cardiac missions around? And, and so the, those things that God had led me to and had really, I believe, had purposed me beforehand. Um, you know, it's like out of the book of Jeremiah where he says, I, I, I have a purpose for you. You've been created. I knit you in the womb in Psalm 139. Beautiful, right? I, I knit you before the foundations of the world. I had a plan for you. Um, and so all I'm really doing is walking through, as David would call, following the shepherd, you know, this 23rd Psalm. Um, and he's leading me in lots of different ways. And so um, people, um, people love selflessness. They, mm -hmm. they love to see it. It, it, even if they don't want to be a part of it, they love to, to see it, right? They, they will honor selflessness. And so I think that, that I became, came into attention, uh, enough attention in the, in the Air Force that that's, that's how I got that. It's a, the Paul Myers Award and it's given to the, what they would call sort of like the most notable um, doctor in the Air Force um, for the year. Um, so that's how I, that's how I received that. Um, truly just following um, a passion to help people. And mm -hmm. that's sort of like where I've gotten now. I'm a pediatric cardiologist pastor. Why am I doing early treatment <laughs> on COVID patients? <laughs> well, because the, the need was there. Yeah. You know, I will say remarkably, and you know, you've got to spend some time with Kim. I refer to a, her as the lovely Dr. Milhone. Um, she, um, she walked with me through this. She walked through every bit of this is is her as well. You don't what I've been able to do it is falls apart without her. Unless God had given me her as this incredible blessing, none of this really would have happened. The orphanage in Zambia, the um, and most remarkable is she stood behind me twice when I went to Iraq. She didn't say, Kirk, you can't do this. Kirk, you can't do this. No, that's too. And say, she stood behind me. She, she loves honor even more than life. Um, and wow, what a, you know, the, the scriptures say, uh, uh, the, basically the man who finds a good wife, you've found a great thing. Uh, and I have, I have, I have found a, a, a great woman in Kim, and and so my story is. I, I love the fact that you might have us on together because because it's hard to extract extract my story from Kim's story. Yes, uh, God, Ginger, and I understand that. Yeah, I mean, right? You you guys are like have this beautiful relationship that has allowed you to go through very very difficult and trying times, challenging times over decades. Um, um, but God gave you a beautiful helpmate. 
Right. Just like he gave Adam Eve, you know, I, I look at Kim as, wow, God, what a gift to me that you gave me her. And I'm sure you look at Ginger the same way. I, I do. Um, in, in fact, he introduced me to her 10 years before I had the courage to go find her. And mm -hmm. I didn't have that courage, actually. And finally, God just picked me up out of D.C. and sent me on a trip. And I found her again in L.A. and had the good sense to say, marry me. Uh, <laughs> I said, uh, you've been in my heart for 10 years and I've been too stupid to look for you. And um, I don't know if you had this experience, but for me, um, I'd I've always been such a think for myself person. I can think anything through. I want to hear what you think, uh, but it doesn't always startle me. Um, and then to uh, meet someone who by no stretch of the imagination should be smarter than me. She has got sick in college and, and didn't finish, so she didn't have a college degree. She's 15 years younger than me. She comes from Indiana, for God's sakes. I come from Long Island, you know. I'm Jewish. She's Christian. And what is all this? And to get to know her and quickly see that beyond this intense spiritual connection we felt, we just felt like something so deep in the way we understood each other. And then to find out that she understands so many things better than I and gets there quicker and sees out of the box. And to I had to, um, um, I, I think it's a little bit like acknowledging God. You acknowledge that you are not the center of all thought or, the, or something. But see, a lot of my thing is with the mind and the mind and the mind. And you also, you do that too, but you do a lot of the physical in the world. And for me and Ginger, it's always been, uh, all right, do we dare think this? Do we dare say that? Do we dare write this? But, uh, and she's been uh, just a constant uh, every day of my life. She's brought something new and, and good and wonderful. And um, um, I just view that not only God do it, put us together, he did it despite me. I mean, I just, I just wasn't ready for the challenge of, of living with somebody who, was potential was uh, potentially over overwhelming in her own thinking processes and her own feelings. So. <laughs> I've never shared that. I don't think on the air before. No, I, I I think the same way. I look at Kim. I I marvel at Kim. I'm you know I'm a I'm pretty distractible. I've got ten minutes or twenty minutes on any given task, and then I move on. And um, Kim can sit and and be involved in something for twelve hours without really moving. Um, and the conversations I get to have with her, the um, really how we sort of talk things through. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's a brilliant woman. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah. I can tell. And, you know, what I, what I joke around is, is like there, she's, and she's, she, <laughs> she's, she, she hates to be in the spotlight. She, she hates it. And I don't mind it at all. She, but she hates it. But every once in a while, I'll explain to people like if they've if they've gone a little bit too far, I said, you've just released the Kraken and you have no idea like the the tenacity and the brilliance that you're about ready to come under the influence. Of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is what we're kind of seeing now. You know, um, she's had this really desire to 
to write. And, you know, and part of what I think for you, for Ginger, for myself and Kim and others, that we have all these sort of interesting bedfellows. Like, why is a pediatric cardiologist talking to a psychiatrist? Right? Why are we having these discussions? I, I think it comes down there are truth seekers. Exactly. And, and we're not satisfied. We, we have a curiosity, but we also have a love for truth. And we hate to see people get deceived. It, it bothers us to our core. That is good. That's a good expression of. Uh, and it's a, it's a, um, it, it rises up inside of us and brings a passion that we're willing to go. Oh no, I'll, I will die on this hill, because people need to hear the truth. That expresses our feelings better than I think we've expressed it. Yeah. And I remember thinking that when I was a very small child. Um, it was instilled in me. I can't say I deliberately thought of that way to be or something. It was like from the beginning, it was, you know, I'm looking at the world and and saying, why? What do you do that for? Why is this happening? Why, why are children treated in this way? Why am I treated in this way? Yeah. Um, why are my parents treated in this way? And it was, uh, from very early on, and I was determined. And that was to tell people about it very early on. Yeah, it's like God has got us created. You know, He creates us all for different purposes. But some of us, He, He, He puts us that that drive in us that we will we will keep seeking. We will keep um, digging um, because we're unsettled. And, and I think a lot of people, even the ones who aren't necessarily willing to put their heads up above the wire, there's an unsettledness. Like that's what people keep asking us. Is like. But we don't understand this. And I go, well, I don't understand it at all in normal thinking. But like a book like the one you and Ginger are putting out, that starts to explain it, right? You now have a context, a, a worldview that starts to ex explain it. Mm -hmm. Even your title, I think, starts to explain it. And so you, you go, oh, because people are trying to figure out, like, I always get asked, but the CDC says this, Kirk, but the FDA says this, Kirk. I go, oh. I don't. I'm not at those meetings. I'm not in the star chamber. I, I don't. I don't know what goes on there. All I can tell you is what I see and what the facts are on the ground. And that should make us all curious and concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ginger and I have always wanted. Um, it's interesting. Uh, you and your wife are very hands-on as well as intellectual. I mean, uh, Ginger doesn't want me to try to fix anything in the house. I mean, it's it's not. I don't. I only learned when I was forty-five to look at my feet when I walked, and that was because I had a bad accident falling down a flight of stairs. <laughs> um, but we've both, Ginger and I, from so early on, have wanted to understand what is going on in in the world, and uh, and um, and we've wanted to, you know, address it just as you have, and it's always been a, a very much an understanding and communicating it. Um, and I'm surprised that our book is the only thing remotely like it. I mean, there's just nothing like it, and. Um, most people who look at it, who are doing the work we're doing, say, "Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, there, this is this is a this is a plan. This has been this had to be organized. This couldn't have happened all over the world at once by chance." And um, 
we're uh, we're still learning more and more about that. Well, I was I was looking at your biography here, or your little autobiography, and um, maybe we've gone through that enough. Um, <clears throat> no, we got one other thing. I mean, it just follows from all that. A couple of other things. So you, you became a, se- a senior pastor at the uh, Calvary Chapel, South Maui. Maui. <laughs> Folks, what is this man thinking? I never think about going anywhere. What is he doing out there? Yeah. And now he also has a federally recognized uh, free medical clinic on Maui. And he's, a, you know, he's board certified and all that stuff. Um, where would you like to take it uh, from here about what's happening? Do you, I understand you're being targeted more than your wife. Uh, so this, by the way, folks, I'm going to say, speak to all of you. This beautiful man, his beautiful wife, are now being viciously, horribly, verbally in the newspapers, uh, attacked and threatened in beautiful Hawaii. So that's what the world has come to. And... Um, well, I've been there. I have been attacked recently. I think about 20 years ago, they decided, don't draw any attention to this person, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. And then overnight, you know, um, I went from being on every TV show and book advances to uh, starting all over again, uh, you know, being a reformer and, and doing and doing things. But um, have you... Well, it's got to have been dismaying that you would be treated like a what a moral leper rather than God's example of a man who's following what he's supposed to do. I mean, it's must have been a little jarring. Yeah, you know, I um, um, well, I've I've talked to a number of newspaper um, outlets. Uh, I probably won't do that anymore. I would do live interviews. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give written statements, um, but. My desire when I talked to them, and so all this, how how this all started was, because I I started a free medical clinic so I could take care of really the underinsured, those people who didn't want to, you know, weren't going to go necessarily to a doctor's office for whatever reason, or our homeless population uh, that we were serving through the food pantry in uh, um, uh, in our church. Uh, and so I, I started it up and it's under, you know, they, they, they sort of mocked me in the press that they put quotation marks about mobile clinic. Right? My mobile clinic is federally recognized and I'm, and I'm under the public health service. Mm. They hadn't heard of me because no one had asked because people really don't interview the homeless a lot in terms of where you're getting your medical care. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I was going into the Kiave forest in Maui and treating people who had skin infections and they were on meth, uh, methamphetamines. And so they didn't want to go to the hospital. And, and so I would treat them with antibiotics and bring things what I could to them and, and treat them. Um, but then as, as COVID started, you know, Kim and I were curious and we have a flock to take care of and everyone's saying you have to lock down and you have to do this and you have to do that. And, and so, um, we started looking at the world literature, like what's going on in the world? Because it hadn't come to us yet. So we're, let's look elsewhere. Let's, you know, and, and I wanted to go places that I felt like I could trust. I think I can, be, I, I like South Korean medicine. I feel like I can trust South Korean. And so they were coming out with this, you know what we've used, we're using this combination of azithromycin, um, zinc and hydroxychloroquine. 
And, you know, about two years before, Kim and I had started seeing some of the data come out on zinc with um, respiratory viruses, and we incorporated it into our international missions. Um, and it, it really dramatically changed our health following missions, because I would see hundreds of kids, half of which had snotty noses and everything like that. Um, and then I would be fatigued and jet lagged and everything else. So I was just spending my time with different international respiratory illnesses. And the zinc had a big effect. You know, I, it, it, this isn't, I wasn't having placebo effect from the zinc. I, you know, I don't believe a, a URI is, a, I can control that with placebos. You know? um, and so when we heard about this, we started looking into it. And then as we started trying to figure out what the denominator was in COVID, because what we were hearing from China was a pretty high number, but they wouldn't give us a denominator. And there were some people, some good statisticians who have been now completely discredited sort of by the mainstream, but brilliant people at brilliant and at, at very respected institutions who came out and said, guys, we don't have a denominator. And as we started getting a denominator out, boy, it wasn't as frightening, still a, a major problem, but wasn't as frightening as 3%. Uh, explain what a denominator is. That is yeah. kind of a unique concept to... Uh... Yeah. So what, right, what a denominator is, is it helps you to put in context the number, especially when you're looking at percentages. So if you have a thousand people die, well, if you have a population of 2000, that's a big deal. That's a 50% death rate. If you have a thousand people who die and it's a million people, that's a different discussion. If it's 10 million people, that's even more of a different discussion. So that how many, when we have cases or disease, and that's a different thing. Cases versus hospitalization, cases versus death. All these are different discussions. If you've looked, our conversation moved from cases and, and then it first started out as deaths. This is how many people had died. And as the denominator got larger and larger, in order to keep, I believe, the fear up, we moved from deaths to hospitalizations. And now it's become what is largely a case-demic. We are using yes. cases. And, the right. and uh, let me remind everybody, as we've talked about on the show, this is an abnormal definition of cases. That They call it a case if the person shows up as positive on a test that gives uh, maybe 90% false positives, according to some estimates. Well, yeah, so when you it's not when, sickness. It's not yeah, when, your incidence of, when your incidence of disease is low and your false positive rate for that test is now basically at the level of your incidence, well, you're gonna have an enormous amount of false positives. So um, these are all things that I think are important when we discuss things, because th this is where, to me, use, we, we have entered into, you know, there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics. So yeah. I explain this when I talk, let, for instance, when I talk to a mother who is pregnant with a child and they have a heart defect, and they ask me, um, well, what if I have another child? What's my risk? Well, there are two ways I can put this that are both true. I can say, well, you have a three to five, 300 to 500 percent increased risk that your next child will be have this. Or I could say you have a 97 percent chance your next child will be fine. Yeah. 
Both of those are true statistics, but one I use to frighten and one I use to encourage. Yeah. What I see right now is mostly fear. Yes, and everything is stretched to fear to terrify us. And a big part of what's going on, uh, Ginger and I have concluded, is that the, the, um, this uh, protein, the spike protein, I always want to call it the protein spike, the spike protein, um, it's really a warhead for totalitarianism. They really are using this as a weapon to cow us. And um, we've concluded finally in the book, after piling evidence on it, we only concluded at the very end that it was that it was a planned release. Um, that's that China saw the advantages of stopping Donald Trump and uh, demoralizing America. America was rising. America, the patriotic America, the Judeo-Christian America, the don't tread on me America <laughs> from the Revolutionary War was was rising. And um, they were planning on an epidemic, I'm not uh, either by chance, because they knew China had such a bad record. They were always letting little epidemics out. SARS-CoV had come out about four times in China uh, years earlier. And um, so, but I think the they got the, the Chinese got desperate. They saw that uh, if this man had a, had a eight years in office, that uh, America was going to really be the powerhouse again, and China was going to be on its knees more. And uh, I think they released it purposely, but. But nonetheless, uh, and I don't think they got any complaints from anybody, uh, because the whole idea behind this globalism is that America stands in the way. That became so clear. They have voiced it. They have stated it. Uh, it's, uh, Klaus Schwab wrote it in a book. He's a very close associate of uh, Bill Gates, that America is the problem. None of these billionaires uh, are patriotic, except maybe one uh, of the top 15. <clears throat> they all got real wealthy in 2020, uh, higher than before. Um, and uh, it's hard to believe, but it's just that the depravity is risen to the top right now. And they don't, they don't see any uh, advantage of America over, over China right now, and and uh, and they're all aligned with them. It's really a terrible situation. Yeah, it's it, in March. I, I I don't have to look at date, but I when I was talking to the church about this, I said, guys, this is not about the virus. This has become about fear because they wouldn't they they won't give us a denominator. They won't allow us to have any encouragement. You know, we've gone through pandemics before. The world's gone through multiple pandemics before. Um, uh, you never take away from the people who have died, but you also have to look at, when you're looking at public health recommendations, you have to look at it in context of where does this lie in the relative degree of pandemics. Um, um, and so, yeah, it, it, you realize that this isn't, this is much less about um, one virus going through. And what I see is a continuing move of totalitarianism. Exactly. Using this as, in a sense, the excuse. And then they browbeat everybody that if you don't do these things, then you don't love your neighbor. 
Um, you know, I had, I had a, a prof uh, one of the um, reporters started out our conversation with, you know, I know most churches are really big about loving your neighbor. It doesn't appear that your church is acting like that, you know, that kind of questioning. You know, what was very interesting is all the people who've questioned me about my early treatment of, of COVID patients and stuff. No one's asked me the important question. No one's asked me, how did they do? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No one has asked me that question. <clears throat> I, just called, I just looked on the newspaper this morning. I was called a quack. I was called a quack, um, which is interesting that they would call me a quack without knowing me, without knowing. Um, but no one's asked me that question, and they weren't interested in it. So if I'm using medicines, they're, they're saying these are dangerous medicines, these are difficult medicines. Well, how many patients have I sent to the ER because they had an inappropriate amount of ivermectin or an inappropriate amount of hydroxychloroquine or whatever else we were talking about when we're talking about early treatment? And there are many, many different things, and we don't have to use those drugs. There are lots of different things, but we have to treat people when they're sick. It's what doctors do or should do. Um, and... Why didn't they ask me that question? Why didn't they say, so we hear you're around 80 to 100 of patients have been treated. How many did you send to the hospital? How many have died? How many do you think you kept out of the hospital? But they don't want to have that discussion. So then you realize you're actually not talking about medicine because that's the discussion we would be having by two doctors. Or, helping, pe or right? helping people, right? not talking about help, helping people. But, but if, like, when, well, give us um, your data before I forget. What, what sure. is your data? So around, around 100 patients um, with lots of different treatment strategies, because as you know, because you spent time with Peter McCullough, um, it's a multi-stage disease that depending on where you come into a patient's life, you don't treat them the same. Right? It's <laughs> different approaches depending on their symptoms, where they're at, comorbidities. So it's a very complex sort of algorithm you work through, which uh, Dr. McCullough has done beautiful work on this and many others, Zelenko and, and others who really fought for the, the health of patients. So I, I, I haven't, and I keep adding to the numbers, um, um, but I've had two patients that I needed to send to the hospital for low saturations. They are both out of the hospital now. One is I saw a guy who was very late. He, his doctor wouldn't see him. They gave him codeine cough syrup. That was it. Um, and when I saw him, he was already in that cytokine storm. Um, and I tried to treat him for a couple of days. And I said, you just need more respiratory intervention than I can do. I had him on home oxygen. So, and then the other one was another late person. Um, but other than that, uh, I've been going that's to a lot of That's 2%, if I remember my math. Yeah, that's pretty low percentage for Two percentage, you pay two out of 100. Yeah. And no, <laughs> ventil no ventilations and no death. Yeah. And, and I believe you because I'm hearing this again and again from reputable people and the studies that have been done, the best data we have that if you look at all the studies, folks, is uh, that 75% um, of the deaths are prevented and about 87% of the hospitalizations. And um, that data is going to vary on how sick the people were to begin with, and so many of them not getting the right treatment quickly enough. So I think that with the proper treatment, your data probably is very close to to it because uh, your two people that had to be hospitalized were already uh, in what would have been end stage without treatment. I, I don't know what's, you know, and you and I see this sort of in the same way. I, I don't understand 
when the Lancet comes out and says there's a 90% reduction when we start budesonide steroids, inhaled steroids, by day three, why wouldn't we... Uh, when they've shown that very clearly in Lancet, why wouldn't we consider that? That's early therapy. I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting called a quack because, to tell you the truth, my most powerful weapon right now, because I'm often getting people that are four or five days into their illness, and I didn't get to catch them really early. I'm catching them a little bit more. And that five to seven day is a really important time where I'm going to see if they transition from mild or they go to more moderate and I have to increase their my interventions upon them. Um, but inhaled budesonide is, I mean, this is Pomacorp. We use this. I was going to say, it's Pomacorp, folks. But, it's what you take for a little asthma. But when people are complaining about early treatment, they're complaining about that as well. So I find myself sort of like, are you kidding me? You're saying that I'm a quack because I said that there's early treatment? What, what I'm seeing has the most effect is I, I definitely, and it's hard for me to tell because I'm not doing that kind of a study where I have this arm where you're only on this arm medicine and this arm because I, I can't afford to do that. No, not to I, the patients. I need to hit, hit them with everything, you know? Um, but what I think is what really has kept people out of the hospital are my steroids use at, at five to seven days. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. Let me again just remind folks that we now know uh, the reasons why the early treatment is being crushed at all cost, and that is uh, because the emergency use, use authorization, which says the powers the federal government to take care of all the direct and the indirect costs of the manufacturers of the vaccine, so they have a, a no-loss um, agreement with the government when they start to manufacture these things or even to start to research them. Um, and then get getting them pushed through the FDA without actual approval of the FDA. All of this takes place under the emergency use authorization. But like most severe emergency acts, there's a caveat in the EUA, and that is you can't do an EUA and spend billions of dollars and give a free ride through the FDA unless there are no other effective treatments. So, and very often when I say this, it's still a shock to people because I haven't heard it before. It is, but it's right, it's in the book, we send you right to the statutes, there's no question about what goes on. And the other reason is, but I think it's it's the more obvious one, because unless you know the law, which says they must crush every available treatment, they must lie, cheat, and steal to destroy hydroxychloroquine, they must, uh, they actually, folks, you'll find in the book, they actually gave toxic doses of of the older drug, chloroquine, to patients killing them so that uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association could rush online uh, an article which was essentially about murdering patients and used it to tell doctors not to take hydroxychloroquine. And the drug was actually chloroquine, it was actually in toxic doses. Um, and you have a drug that's so old, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It goes goes back to quinine, to the bark of a tree, and uh, evolved up, and human beings have been using it forever as one of the safest drugs in the world. We're getting um, toward the end. Um, 
I have, I'm, I'm just fiddling here with my notes. We only really have two or three more minutes, four more minutes to talk. Um, first of all, thank you for being alive. Uh, thank you for you and your wife. Um, maybe I'll get my wife to do the very first of these shows she's ever done. The only the only thing she's ever done was to like 20 years ago, we went up on a stage and talked about our work together and the standing ovation people loved. It. And she said, okay, that's enough. I'm not going on stage anymore. <laughs> so, so um, she, maybe interviewing the two of you, she'll just see I need help, that I need her to be there, to be the couple, to share with the couple. So we're working up to it. And with God's blessing, um, uh, when we have you back uh, as a couple, uh, I'll be here with Ginger. That would be just uh, just warm my heart. Yeah. Um, Ginger does so much to empower me all these years, as you said I, I, about yourself. I, I don't know where. I think I might actually be dead. I'm not sure I could have stood it for a lifetime doing what I was doing. And um, uh with Ginger, it's a renewal every day, and she's brought me much greater awareness of the presence of God in my life. People were telling me from, I mean, from when I was very young and taking all this on, and there was an attempt on my, my family and myself to really either make us very ill or kill us, and and that, that you know, God's protecting you, do your work, <laughs> people were telling me. And uh, now I'm 85 and um, I'm beginning to get the idea that maybe I've been protected because the evidence is very long in time. So what would you like to conclude with? Do you have any close, closing thoughts, Kirk, Kirk Milhone? Um, I think if I would conclude, conclude with anything, I, it's a call um, to physicians uh, to courage. Yes. To do what is right for the patient, um, come what may. Uh, I, was, I, I had a chance to watch De Gaulle um, in, uh, on a, a plane <clears throat> recently. It's the story of De Gaulle's life, Charles De Gaulle in, uh, from Paris, or France. And uh, what I realized at the end is right now there are no airports um, with the Hitler's name on it in Europe. <laughs> but his name is on an airport in Paris. Yeah. But he was, he lost his citizenship, did a number of very difficult things for him because he was willing to stand up and resist and fight for the re French resistance. My call is to doctors is be courageous and fight for the treatment of people who are sick. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Kirk Mahone. You're. <laughs> You're, you're just an inspiration to me and I'm sure to millions of people. Thank you. Thank you. For, well, for, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and you, yeah. you, you have inspired Kim and I and your oh, story that's continues to inspire. And I'm very excited to read your book. Very and excited. I forgot to mention how they get the book. Uh, the, quickly catch up everybody who's already bought the book, which is well over 10,000 people now mm -hmm. bought it in advance. You, uh, the Printing presses are going. In fact, I, I sent out um, a video they sent us of the print, printing presses going because the printer is really proud to be printing this book. It's a blessing. And um, you will be getting the mailing of that book around September 20th. And the book will not go up 
for public until everyone who is paid gets the book. Ginger is going to honor you for waiting some of you many months to get the book. Um, we're not anymore giving uh, away um, the manuscript like we used to because the book is really near. And um, again, we just so much appreciate it. And uh, people buying the book in advance has allowed us to invest in a huge printing and uh, probably more printings and the money will keep going back into getting that book out in the world. Oh, and in Canada now, you can now buy the book from us. Go to, here's what you do. You go to wearethepray.com. Wearethepray.com. And as of, I think, yesterday, Ginger has made it <clears throat> so that the book is going to be sent and then distributed in Canada. So you won't have to pay uh, the price of um, mailing from the U.S. We'll mail it to you from Canada. That's my business wife, businesswoman, woman among a million other things. And so if you want it in Canada, I know uh, thousands of you have communicated with us. You can now go to wearethepray.com and, and get uh, the uh, book COVID-19 and the Global Predators uh, in Canada and maybe soon everywhere. Thank you again, Dr. Kirk Nolan.